We're in a series called Oddity, and you're looking at the different ways that Jesus surprises us with his life and with his teaching. Jesus is easily the most well-known person in all of history. There have been more books written about him, more songs sung about him, more paintings done of him than anyone else to ever walk on this earth. And yet, while Jesus is the most famous person in history, he is also one of the most misunderstood. That's because we all come to Jesus with different expectations. Some of us come to Jesus and expect him to validate our lives. Others of us assume that he's going to take the fun out of our lives. Many expect Jesus to change their lives, but Jesus defies all of our expectations. He's different than we think and yet better than we can possibly imagine. And in our passage today, Mark, a disciple of Jesus, tells us a story showing us the unexpected truth about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what that means for us. What happens when the desperation of man encounters the power and compassion of Jesus. So Mark chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you this morning, God, from different experiences, different backgrounds. There's different challenges set before us. We struggle with different temptations, God, but we are here because we know the answer to all of those things, God, is in Christ. We need you, Lord. We need you more than anything else, and we ask now in this time, God, that you would meet with us through your word, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would heal us where we need to be healed that you would reorient our hearts toward the goodness and compassion and power of Jesus. Lord, we are desperate for you this morning. And so we, we offer up our, our hearts to you and our attention, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to his church this day. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. All right, well, let, let me start out giving you a little background. The book of Mark is an introduction to the person and ministry of Jesus. His priority has been clear throughout the book of Mark. It was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And alongside his preaching, he would authenticate his message by doing various miracles. But he didn't come primarily to be a miracle worker. He came to preach the good news. And this morning, we're in the second section of the book of Mark, chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6. And what you have in this section of Mark are five controversy narratives. The controversy surrounding Jesus is starting to grow. Claims about himself and his authority and his personhood are becoming clearer and clearer, and the controversy begins to build. And we see the first of these narratives in this passage that we're looking at today. And I've broken this passage down into three parts. Number one, a demonstration of authentic faith, a surprising response, and the transforming power of a new identity. First, a demonstration of authentic faith. Notice what's happened in this story. Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's there probably in Peter's house doing what he came to do. It said that he was preaching the word to them, and the place was packed, so packed that there was no more room for anyone to even get into the house. And we don't know what the words of the sermon that he was preaching were, but no doubt he was connecting his person to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And essentially saying, I am the fulfillment of the scriptures. I am the fulfillment of the one that you are longing for and hoping for. It is, it is me. And as Jesus is there teaching, these men who have carried their paralyzed friend from who knows how far, they, they come to this house and, and they can't get in. And so they decide to climb up onto the roof and tear the roof open and tie ropes to their friend and lower him down in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. This is insane. You can just imagine the scene. They're, they're in a Bible study. Jesus is preaching. Next thing you know, ceiling tiles start to fall from the ceiling, and then light starts shining through, and there's four guys up there just beginning to lower a man down through ropes in front of Jesus. It's an incredible, incredible scene. And as they're doing this, it says that Jesus saw their faith. I love the example of these men. It's as if they're here in this part of Scripture as an example of what faith does. Jesus responds to their faith. And you can almost hear the words of Hebrews 11.6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Genuine faith is always rooted in truth. It's rooted in God's declaration of who he is. It's rooted in the truths of the gospel. Faith is not some kind of religious leap in the dark. It's rooted in truth, but it's not just that. Faith is always action. Faith is not just theological. It's not just conceptual. Faith is never just mental assent to something. Faith is always action. It's always a way of living. It's always a lifestyle. It's always an approach to life. Faith won't just change the way you think. Faith will always change the way that you live. And you see that in this paralyzed man and his friends because they really did believe that Jesus had the power that he said he had. 
They would not relent. They would not stop. They were actually driven to do something radical to get their friend in front of Jesus. Genuine faith holds up when it's tested. Faith doesn't give up in the face of difficulties. Faith doesn't run away when things are hard. Faith doesn't quit, doesn't give up, doesn't give way to doubt, doesn't walk away in the face of the unexpected and the difficult. And let me ask you, what happens when you face obstacles in your life? When you face hard things, when the life of faith isn't easy, when you're receiving opposition or life is difficult or you're not sure what God is doing or you're suffering in some way, what happens to your faith? Do you begin to revisit old habits? Do you isolate yourself from community? Do you begin to neglect the Lord? Oh, that God would give us this kind of faith that we would not only believe the truths of the gospel, but that those truths would be formative in the way that we live. So that I can say, I'm doing what I'm doing as a husband because I believe that God exists and that he is good and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. I do what I do as an employee or as a coworker because I believe. I believe that God is who he says he is and this changes everything. I believe I do what I do as a friend, as a mother, as a father, because I really do believe that God exists and he rewards those who seek him. And I wish that I could say that everything I do in my life was an expression of my faith, but it's not. And it's in those times that I have to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, so that everything I do and everything that I am would be shaped and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith is how we lay hold of Christ and how we follow him throughout our lives. And the faith of these men is visible. They were determined. What great friends. They were willing to go to any length to get their friends in front of Jesus. I pray that we would have that same heart as we look to our friends, to we look to, as we look to the people in our lives who need to get to Jesus, that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to facilitate that. Because they believed, and they were willing to go this far to see their friend healed. But that's not what's radical about this story. We're about to get radical. Jesus observes their faith, and what he does next deserves our attention we see a surprising response. Notice Jesus' response to their faith in verse 5. It says, when he saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Definitely not the response that you expect. Definitely not the ex response that these friends were expecting. Or definitely the response that the religious leaders were expecting. No doubt they were anticipating that Maybe Jesus would see this man and heal him of his physical infirmity and be done with it. But what Jesus does here is far more scandalous and far more profound. He declares forgiveness to this man for his sins. It almost seems as if Jesus has missed the point. But this man was far more needy than he even realized. And what we want to be saved from and what we need to be saved from are not always the same thing. It 
It's always a mistake, mistake to think that if Jesus would just heal me of this affliction, then everything would be okay in my life. If Jesus would just provide this thing that I'm lacking in my life, then everything will be fine. If I could just have this one thing, or Jesus could just do this one thing to transform me, to change me in my life, everything will be okay. But the truth is, our greatest problem is never just physical, it's never just circumstantial. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about our suffering, but what we need most is a healing that goes much deeper. Now, we know that whenever Jesus, wherever Jesus went, controversy followed him. And everything was fine as long as Jesus was just healing people. Nobody was offended by that. Everyone expected that. Everyone wanted that. There were no objections. But the miracles were not the point of Jesus' ministry. They were always a pointer pointing toward his teaching. And it's interesting here in our story that the, the religious leaders are the only people in this story just sitting there. Everyone else is crowded in. They're standing. They're, they're hanging on every word of Jesus. And th there they are sitting, probably with their arms folded, assuming that they were better than everyone else. So taking the seats of honor in the room, no doubt. Everyone thought that if anyone had a chance of making it into the kingdom, it would have been the scribes, these religious leaders. They looked really, really good on the outside. But Jesus is going to expose the unbelief and blasphemy in their hearts. And it's interesting here in our story, the scribes, they get the claim right, but they reach the wrong conclusion about Jesus. We know, they say, that God alone can forgive sins. Jesus is claiming that he has authority to forgive sins. Jesus is making himself out to be God. Blasphemy. See, their question was right, but their conclusion was wrong. So these scribes have challenged Jesus' authority, but, but only in their hearts at this point. And Jesus, he wants to expose what they're, what they're thinking in their hearts. And he proposes a question to them. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up, take up your bed and walk. He doesn't ask which is easier to do, forgive or heal. He asks which is easier to say. Forgiveness of sins is invisible. And it's internal. It's impossible to see from the outside. Physical healing is visible and external. It would be immediately evident to everyone if Jesus' words fell directly to the ground. But Jesus says, rise. Take up your bed and walk. This is incredible. The paralytic's legs are dead. He has no ability to obey Jesus' command. But that's the point. Jesus can heal the paralytic because as God, he has the power of the creator. The paralytic doesn't need to have the ability to obey the command because Jesus can create what he calls for. He calls something into existence that was not there before. Dead legs live because Jesus spoke living legs into being. The paralytic immediately obeys and he rises up, takes up his mat, and walks. And here's what Jesus wants everyone to know in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this is really the heart of this passage. And there's more going on here than meets the eye at first glance. 
Notice here, he does not use the word ability, but authority. This is not merely a question of can Jesus do it, but has he been given the right to do it? And this is a massive point because this is the first time that Jesus uses the title Son of Man to describe himself. And when you look at that title with the word authority, it takes you to one place in the Old Testament, and that's Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and that word dominion is translated in the Septuagint, authority, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so in Daniel's vision, the Ancient of Days here is on the throne and the books of judgment are opened. And the Son of Man is given authority to judge sins. Then here in Mark, we see he also has the authority to forgive sins. And so you have to see what, what's happening here. We have an Old Testament connection between the Son of Man and authority. And Jesus uses both of those terms to describe himself in this passage. And the point would be clear to the Jew who was listening that day. That people were supposed to see this claim of Jesus to be the son of man with authority here on earth, forgiving the paralytic, and they were, they were to cry out, this is our God. This is truly the Messiah. Our eternal destiny will be determined by our response to Jesus. The paralytic trusts in Christ, and he's forgiven. He goes from death to life. The scribes reject Jesus, and they think he's committing blasphemy. But the irony here is this. If Jesus really is God, and they're denying it, they are the ones committing blasphemy. So Mark has given us this story in which Jesus does what only God can do to show that he truly is God in the flesh. See, the miracle is not the point. It's a pointer. The physical, visible to all miracle, verifies the spiritual, invisible to all miracle. The man carried his bed, but he no longer carried the weight of sin on his back. What should have been more astonishing? The miracle of healing or the miracle of forgiveness? The healing would cost the owner of the house some roof repairs. But forgiveness would cost Jesus his life. And a Jew would have thought that forgiveness came only in the temple through a sacrifice. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Jesus died on the cross and offered the perfect sacrifice. He saves all that come to him by faith. The Son of Man is given authority to give his life as a payment for sinners. We don't just have the promise of forgiveness, but the purchase of it. Salvation is the far greater miracle. When we come to Jesus, the truth is forgiveness is just the beginning. We notice lastly how Jesus' power to save changes the very foundation of who we are. And I'm going to make some application here for us in this last section. The transforming power of a new identity. Look again at verse 5. 
Notice how Jesus addresses this man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son. Now this is a rare thing for Jesus to call someone son. It's the Greek word technon. It's, it's familial language. It's intimate. See, when you come to Jesus, you always get more than you bargain for. Jesus doesn't only heal this man of his physical problem because that is not his main problem or his deepest need. The paralytic got far more than healing, even more than forgiveness, like some legal status. He gets a new family, a new identity. Jesus calls him son. He has become a part of God's family. He's gone from being a child of wrath to a child of God. Could anything be more wonderful than that? Listen to what J.I. Packer says about this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you are in Christ, you've been adopted as God's son and daughter into his family. And this changes everything. I came across an article written by a woman who attended a, a conference on sonship, on adoption. And in this article, she, she describes how transformative her time at this conference was. And, and she opens up this article by telling a story from her childhood. And so I'm, I'm going to read this to you. I think it's powerful and it makes our point. She opens up the article by telling this story. She says, one day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. And I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter, and I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline, it was too high. But I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirt to the handles so it could dry. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me, and he punished me severely for ruining his shirt. She goes on to recount that as she remembered these scenes from her childhood while being at this conference, she said, I realized that, that I had thought, I had thought for years of God as being like my earthly father. And I kind of saw God as standing next to the wheelbarrow with a ruined shirt on it and, and, and being angry with me. I had realized that I had not been listening when God describes himself as a good father. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel. So the next morning, I told our counselor that I was beginning to understand. 
I told him the story and said that I guess if my heavenly father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. And I'll never forget what my counselor said to me, she said. You still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed by that realization. She continued, I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. That God would answer if my prayers were right. That God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. I finally realized that my entire life had been oppressive. I did not know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God demanded. With that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted with me. Now, I don't know how you think God feels about you. Maybe angry, aloof, disappointed. But if you don't know that in Christ, the, the eternal countenance over you from God is a smile, you don't yet get the gospel. You don't understand adoption. Because understanding our identity as adopted sons and daughters changes everything. And I'm convinced that the most surprising and consistent battle we face in the Christian life is the fight to train our conscience that God really, truly, and enthusiastically approves of us. Not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what he has done for us and what he says about us. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the good news of the gospel. Through our adoption, God the Father sees us just like he sees Jesus. He looks at you in Christ and he sees you as clean. He sees you as blameless. He sees you as holy. When he looks at you, he sees you in Christ. And he fully delights in you just as he delights in Jesus. He fully exalts over you. He, you're fully known by him and fully accepted by him and fully loved by him in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why the gospel is so amazing. This is why grace is so scandalous. Because we have a hard time wrapping our heads and our hearts around the idea that we are loved and accepted and approved by God not because of what we do for him but because of what he has done for us. And that he has initiated all of it. That we simply come to him in desperation with open hands to receive it. It's grace. 
It's dumb. It makes no sense. But it's the most beautiful thing. And it changes everything. And so God says to us, here in Romans 8, Paul says that, that God is essentially saying to us, I want you to call me the same thing that Jesus calls me. I want you to call me Abba. And this is how children in, in Israel called their fathers. They called them Abba. Abba is a cry of adoration. It's a cry of desperation. It's about intimacy and relationship. God says, I want you to call me that. I want you to call me the same thing Jesus calls me. Abba. How can you and I relate to this paralyzed man in this passage? We may not have the same obvious need that this man had, but all of us are in need of Jesus' healing touch in some way. This man needed healing physically, but all of us are in need of healing from sin and all of its effects. What Jesus did for this man physically is a picture of what he's come to do for all of us who come to him in faith. And some of you are in a desperate place in your life right now. I don't know what it is. We're suffering in so many different ways. We have so many needs. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, because of things that we've done or things done to us. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus here is here and he wants to meet your need. So what are the things in your life that you know are not right? That are broken? What we often do is we end up living in those things hopelessly. We have this area in our life that we try to fix ourselves and at the end of the day we can't seem to correct it. Some habit, some condition, something wrong with us. And we push people away from that area. Maybe we've been burned before. Maybe we see that they don't really have the answers for it. But do we sprint to Jesus in those times? Rather than becoming bitter, withdrawn, unfeeling people who become insensitive to the very things that are eating away at us, we need to be like this man and his friends who are taking the most hopeless situation and are rushing to Jesus and saying to him, I bring this before you. We don't have means in ourselves. We've tried. And the only thing that that has exposed is that we, we don't have the answers. I'm not the answer to my deepest problems. Do you have confidence today that Jesus has authority to forgive your sins, no matter what they are? Do you have confidence today that Jesus knows you and cares deeply about what you're going through? It's my prayer that you would have a renewed confidence in Jesus this morning to rescue you in all the ways that you need to be saved. Listen, Jesus never turned away a desperate person. And we're all desperate for Jesus, all of us. And it's my prayer for this church that it would be known as a safe place for desperate people because we're a community of desperate people. If you don't walk out of here today with anything else, I pray you leave with this. That whatever you bring to Jesus for hope, for power, 
for forgiveness. He is more than sufficient to meet your need. So what is your need? Whatever it is, it's not too big for Jesus to deal with. Jesus was willing to go this far for this man, but that's nothing compared to how far he was willing to go for you and I when he went to the cross. And he suffered and died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. My greatest need and your greatest need is to be forgiven and to be brought into a right relationship with God. And if you're here today visiting or you're not a Christian and someone brought you, I'm so glad you came. So glad you're here. This can be yours. You can know God as Father and experience forgiveness and experience new life and a hope that goes beyond what we experience in this lifetime. And there's nothing greater than that. You can simply come to him in faith as a desperate person with your heart and hands open to him and he will meet you where you're at by faith and give you new life. And for those of us who know him, I pray that whatever it is that we're bringing into this place this morning, that we would just lay it at his feet and that we would trust him. Not just trusting his power, but trusting his heart. That he is a compassionate savior who never turns away a person in need. A person who comes to him in simple faith. Says, Jesus, I don't have the answers. I don't know how to correct this. I don't know how to get out of this pit. Save me. Jesus meets us right in those moments. And he delights to. Nothing articulates a desperate people more clearly than a praying people. We need to be a people who are praying with desperate prayers for Jesus. And so this morning, as I close us in prayer, and I walk off and you guys begin to worship and do communion and all those things, I want that time of reflection to be a time for you when you examine your heart before the Lord and you lay down all of your brokenness before him, whatever it is, and you invite him in to what's going on and you, you declare, Jesus, I can't see a way out of this, but I trust you. That you would allow the spirit to work this morning. You would allow him to meet you in exactly the way you need to be met and minister to you there. Whatever your need is, forgiveness, healing, restoration, just to be strengthened, bring it to Jesus this morning and he will meet your need. Let me pray. Father, we stand in awe this morning of the fact that we can be called sons and daughters of God. I think of 1 John chapter 3, where it begins by saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Behold, be amazed, be astounded at the kind of love that God has for us that he would call us his children. 